when I was a teenager, we had a revival in our church, and uh, I don't remember who was preaching. Uh, I don't remember uh, what the sermon was about, but I remember one verse. I remember the verse the pastor preached from. It wasn't our pastor. He was a visiting evangelist. Uh, and it was from the text that we're going to look at today from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And the verse simply said, let love be without dissimulation. Well, uh, I didn't know what dissimulation was then, and you probably don't know what it means now. But after he finished, I understood the, the meaning of the, of the verse, and that verse was marked in my heart. Uh, all these years, over 50 years. And so this week, as I began to study the passage of Scripture, I, I got out my little boy Bible, as I call it. It's the Bible my mother gave to me when I was nine. It's the Bible that I was using, I would have used, I would have carried to church uh, that night and, and opened my Bible as the pastor read the Scripture, which you should do if you're whoever you are. And I wanted to see if the verse was marked in my in my Bible. And sure enough, there's a little pencil mark around that verse, Romans 12, 9, let love be without dissimulation. And so I share that just to sh say to you that I assumed that that was a great sermon and that he was a great preacher because all has been lost to me, the name of the preacher, the, the, the thrust of the message, all has been lost to me except what God said. So may it be so this morning that all is lost to us as we open God's word except what God says. May we hear from him this morning as we consider what Paul says about being the church, being the church. We've been looking at the book of Romans as he's explained to us the, the meaning of the gospel, but now he's beginning to tell us how we ought to live that out in our daily lives. And we're going to see six commands that Paul gives us about being the church from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And the first one is simply love. And that comes from this verse, Romans 12, 9. I, I read you the verse from the King James Version, let love be without dissimulation. But in the New English uh, by, or the English Standard Version, it reads, let love be genuine. In the New Living Translation, it reads, don't pretend to love others, really love them. And so Paul gives us that first command to love. Dissimulation, by the way, means dishonesty, camouflage, uh, disguise, or hypocrisy. Would there be any hypocrisy in your life towards another person in this room, do you pretend to love the people in this room or do you really love them? Who might I pretend to love? Well, I might pretend to love God. I might come up here and put on a show to you that I love God, but God would know my heart. He would know whether I just have on camouflage up here today or if I really love him. I might pretend to love my wife and yet have something else in my heart. God says, don't let your love be with dissimulation. Don't let it be a disguise or a camouflage or some act of hypocrisy. Really love them. Be real. Be genuine. So what does God honor? Does he honor 
dissimulation and dishonesty and hypocrisy? No, he can't, and he won't. So Paul says here, he, he describes the kind of love he's talking about. He says in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. He says, outdo one another in showing love. Uh, one Greek word is translated love one another, and it's a Mississippi word. Actually, it's a Pennsylvania word as well. It's the word Philadelphia. That's exactly the word in the Greek New Testament, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a Greek word. You know it means, this. we could say it means the city of brotherly love, but really it just means love each other, love one another. It means love like brothers love brothers. And he uses two words together, one Philadelphia, the other he describes how to love. He says, love one another, philostorgos. It means like family loves family in the church. Love each other like family loves family. And don't be the one that is love, but be the one that's doing the loving. You go over the top in your effort to love somebody else. Let your love for your brother or sister or your husband or wife mirror the grace of God. Let it abound and overflow so that there would never be a question about whether or not you love a person, even if that person rejects your love. Keep on loving them because that is the way that God loves us. So the first command that Paul gives us about being the church is above all things in the church, we ought to love, we ought to love one another, we ought to outdo one another in showing love. But the second command that Paul gives us about being the church is this, stand strong against wrong. He says in the second part of verse 9, he says, abhor, abhor, what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Now that word abhor means to hate. Hate what is evil. First, hate it in your own life. Don't allow it. Don't permit it. But also, don't permit it in your church. Now some of us have talked in recent days about what kind of people should you want to come to church? You know, we're going to be doing outreach. We're going to be maybe knocking on some people's doors and inviting them to come to our church who can we invite to our church we want to invite everybody to our church we want everybody to come in hopes that some of them will hear the gospel and some of them will be saved some of them will be sinners like you were a sinner a terrible sinner before you came to know the lord jesus christ but you were saved you were washed you were sanctified as paul says in 1 Corinthians about some of those people that came into the church there. We want to see people transformed. But one of the things today that we need to be careful about are those who are asking the church to call evil good. They're asking the church to bow to culture and accept that because the culture has changed, so the church ought to change. Paul speaks to the contrary. He says, abhor that which is evil, hate it. It means to have a horror of it, and so stand against it. But on the other hand, he says, hold fast to that which is good. Cling to it. And the word there means to glue. The Greek word means to glue yourself to it like two pieces of wood are glued together. So stay glued to the truth of Scripture. Stay glued to love even when it is hard. Now, one of the problems that we're plagued with in the church today is, is that we're plagued with a deep 
spiritual laziness. In the book of Amos, it's called being at ease in Zion. It's a wonder we don't put recliners in our churches. And so because of that, Paul issued a third command. He says, be passionate. Look at verse 11. He said, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I had a football coach in junior high. His name was Robert Pepper. I remember Coach Pepper so well and and, uh, how he challenged us all the time. And he put a passion in in some young boy's heart to grow up to be bigger boys and that passion remained. He was, he would always, uh, he reminded me of a preacher, Brother Doug, that is, has, was on the Baptist scene for a while. He would pull his britches up when he talked to us. He, he'd have on those little coaches shorts and he'd pull his britches up and he'd say, he'd get down like this, he'd say, now men, he said, it's not the size of the man in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the man. And he made us feel bigger than we were and play bigger than we were. And so in the church, it's the same way. Paul says, you got to be passionate. you got to be fervent in spirit in serving the Lord. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he uses two different words that speak of the nature of our service. One of them is zeal. The other word is fervent. What do those words mean? Well, the first one means earnestness, diligence, and exercising earnest care. The second word, fervent, means to boil, to be hot with heat. So what do those words describe? Well, they describe serving the Lord, how we ought to serve the Lord, not with a slothful laziness. I'm just so sad I got to do this. I don't want to read my Sunday school lesson. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to I live for the Lord. It's not to be serving the Lord from, for Lord from the malaise of an afternoon nap, but with an earnestness and diligence that boils with a zealous passion. Does that describe you? Does it describe your service? Does it describe your love for God? Does it describe the way you read the Bible? Does it describe the way you worship? Does it describe the way you teach? Does it describe the way you sing? Does it describe the way you preach? Now, really, I, I understand, people. I, I know you can't always have that kind of attitude. After, after all, you, you, you have problems, and we have to wait about how things are going to turn out in various situations. And sometimes we have to bring that to church with us. We, we have some trials, and they're hard. I understand that. I, I have some of those, too. And, and you really can't always keep your mind on the Lord. There's so much to distract. But Paul didn't allow any such excuses. He didn't allow that. And so he comes up with number four. Here's the fourth command, and it's this. Don't whine. Don't whine. Not don't whine in the church. Don't come in here whining. You know, we sang all these songs this morning about, I listened to them as we sang them. God is holy. God is majestic. God is awesome. The God that we serve is great and powerful. There's nothing too hard for him. The God that we serve, according to Paul, is a God who can work all things together for good. The God that we serve is a God who is is sovereign over all of our problems. Neither tribulation, nor peril, nor sword, nor height, nor depth, principality, nor power, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have nothing to whine about. Paul said, look, if you have problems, rejoice in the hope that you have. 
Keep your eyes on the Lord. Those troubles and trials you have, be patient under them. And that's what it means. The word patient, patience means to bear up under, to endure bravely and calmly. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But don't worry about it. You be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Stand calmly with your trust in the Lord. Don't let that distract you. All the problems that we have, and we all have them, and you're going to always have them. You're going to always have them. They're never going to go away. The problems you have today that you don't have tomorrow will be replaced by new problems. There will always be problems. There will always be trial. There will always be trouble. Jesus said you can count on it, but one of the things that you can count on is, well, that I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So get out of your recliner and serve the Lord with a boiling zeal. Neither let trial nor ease put out your fire. Don't whine. Number five, he says, be merciful. Look at verse 13 and then verse 15. If you really want to get out of your doldrums, go find someone in need and help them. Invite someone less fortunate to your home and feed them. He said, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 15, rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I've been telling our folks on Wednesday night that from time to time I get an email from uh, a gentleman working in Turkey in the earthquake area of Turkey. I served with him in an area of Romania where he was working with Turkish Muslims. That's where he normally works, but since the earthquake, he's been there in, in the earthquake-damaged areas. I got an email from him uh, just a few days ago. Last week, I think it was. He said, I used to think poverty was when you don't have this or that or the other, when you don't have money for bills, when you drive an old car, and when you grow old still paying rent. It's not like that. You're poor when you don't have Christ, the Lord of life. You are poor when you lose your loved ones unexpectedly. You are poor when a few days ago you lived in a villa and now you lost everything and you stand in line for an hour just to receive a free soup. You are poor when you can no longer hear the voices of your children screaming around the house. You're poor when all your dreams, hopes and dreams are buried underneath concrete rubble. You're poor when your relatives died without Christ and you are still alive, but without Christ, staring at the gray sky above, not knowing where to turn. It smells like death in here. Death is life lived without him. And then he goes on to say how they visited these, these people in the streets who are living in the streets. He said, we prayed for them and told them about the hope we have in Christ. We gave them water, bread, diapers, baby food, and canned goods. I told them that when a sinner cries out to Christ in faith and repentance, the Lord hears and saves them. Probably for the first time in the history of modern Turkey, Christians are being praised in the Turkish press. For years, especially in recent years, Christian has, Christians have been 
portrayed as a danger to, to Turkish society. We hope that this involvement with our Turkish brothers will make the authorities change their opinion. We pray for that. The regular Muslims who are going through this terrible tragedy are extremely grateful. They almost kiss our hand when we offer them supplies and food. When they find out we are Christians, they ask us to pray for them and with them. So you hear Paul say here exactly what he's doing. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. These verses relate to how we deal with people. It relates to the core of who I am as a believer. There is nothing that bridges the gap of a broken relationship like reaching out to minister to someone in their need. But what if you reach out to someone and they reject you? What if they, you reach out to somebody and they persecute you or they hurt you or they wrong you? So Paul gives us the final command, number six, and that is be forgiving. This is in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Verse 17, repay no one. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Now these verses relate to how we deal with those who hate us, who hurt us, and who, who are our enemies. It tells us how to deal with evil. So what should I do when somebody persecutes me? Now let's frame it in the context of 2023 living in Loosedale. Somebody, how might somebody persecute a person living in Loosedale? Well, let's say that they decide they're going to post some things that are hurtful about me on social media, maybe some things that are untrue. How am I to respond? How am I to respond when a family member hurts me or wrongs me? And let's be honest, there's nothing that hurts worse than when the knife that stabbed in your back comes from the hand of someone who loved you or you thought loved you. Uh, so, so should I give them what for? They hurt me. So should I hurt them in return? They did me wrong, so now I'll repay them for what they did. I'll get revenge. Look carefully at what Paul says. More than that, look at why he says it. We have to go all the way back to verse 1 because Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, based on the mercies of God. He's asking you to reflect a similar uncharacteristic mercy to those who hurt you, to those who wrong you, to those who meant you harm and did you harm. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in, in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43 and 40 through 45, he says, You've heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You are to pray for them, not only, you're not only to bless them, but ask God to bless them. So what, what about the family member that hurt you? 
That happens, doesn't it? It's probably happened to all of us. Are you to try to retaliate and, and hurt them in, in return? The Lord says here through Paul, he says, never take revenge. Remember who the one who will take revenge is. Vengeance belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. Never repay evil for evil. You've heard it said two wrongs don't make a right. Paul said it. Never repay evil for evil. But if your heart is right with him, you are going to remember that God had a score to settle with you, didn't he? Didn't you wrong God? Hasn't your sin wronged God? Hasn't your sin stabbed God in the heart more than once? Even when you knew how he loved you, you trod underfoot the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And how has God settled the score with you? How did he settle the score with you? He settled the score with you at the cross. He forgave you of your worst wrongs against him. And if you're his child, you'll be praying for those who hurt you just as Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. And what did he say from the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed for people that way who misunderstood him, who misrepresented his motives. That was the case when somebody hurt you. They completely misunderstood you. They rejected your heart. That's what hurt so bad. They misrepresented your motives. They treated you as if you weren't one of their own. You know what it says about Jesus in the scriptures? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He knows how it feels to be persecuted and rejected and misrepresented. Paul said, if you really want to pour salt in somebody's wound, if you really want to hit them where it hurts, love them. Back in the 1970s, I was probably 22 years old as I was a pastor of Bonner Creek Baptist Church, Brother Walter Mixon, who is the Director of Missions for our association, and I have the privilege of having pastored that church when we were younger. I was there before him in my early 20s as a seminary student, and I had a deacon there. His name was Otto Blackwell. Brother Otto was in his 80s at the time. Brother Otto told me the story of a visit he and the pastor had made to a family who was mad at the church. They wouldn't come to church. They wouldn't receive anyone from the church. And Brother Otto said, so the pastor and I went by. The family hadn't been to church in years. He said, we knocked on the door, and the wife came to the door and slammed the door in our face. He said, the pastor was really ready quickly to walk off the porch. I guess I would have been too. And Brother Otto said, I grabbed him as he was going down the steps, and I pulled him back up on the porch. And I just dropped down to my knees, and he dropped down to his knees with me. And he said, there on the porch of that house, I began to pray. And he said, I prayed, and when I finished my prayer, he said, the door opened. And the couple invited us into their home. The couple came back to church. The man in the home eventually became a deacon in that church. But how would it have turned out if Brother Otto and the pastor had said, wait till we get back to the church we're going to put this on social media about how rude these people were to us. Let's go get some eggs and let's egg their car. Let's, let's say something bad about them or let's try to hurt them the way they hurt them. No, that's not the way they responded. They responded by doing exactly what the scripture says here, by loving that couple. And the love that they poured out on that couple melted their 
hearts. They didn't render evil for evil. But right now, the heart that needs to be melted this morning is your heart and my heart. Because this morning, it's not Brother Otto and some pastor that need to get down on their knees and pray. It's you. You may need to come to this altar and ask God to help you forgive. You may need to come here and ask God to help you release some hurt that's in your life so that you can be an agent of reconciliation and love. And if not here, you need to make an altar somewhere and you need to do business with God. Because Jesus said, remember, before you, if you have something against your brother, before you come and give your gift to the altar, first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Because when there's that brokenness, there's something standing between you and God. But one of the things you can do is you can allow God to deal with it at the cross where he dealt with you. You can say, God, I can't fix this. I can't resolve it. But I can give it to you as best I can, and I can ask you to help me to deal with it. Give me the strength that you gave Jesus on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You remember last week when we said, talked about God giving an assignment, maybe to be a missionary in a faraway land, maybe to be an adult Sunday school teacher, which one takes more faith? And we said that God gives a metron of faith equivalent to the assignment, the exact measure. You realize God can give you the exact measure of faith that you need to do for that very thing. So, how do we be the church? We be loving. We stand strong against wrong. We be passionate. We don't whine. We be merciful. And above all else, we be like Jesus. We be forgiving. Would you pray with me?